0: So, the White Castles um, I've talked about White Castles a couple of times Especially in the last four months or so I went home to Louisville And uh, for the first time, and I don't know It had to have been 20 years, I had some White Castles And I told you that I had a really funny story to tell about White Castles But at the time, I just didn't have the opportunity to tell it But this morning, it seems like it really fits with the sermon So Leslie encouraged me to tell the story the story goes like this. When I was roughly seven years old or so, maybe eight, I used to live in New York, and I would fly every summer to visit my grandmother in Indiana. And so one summer, I flew to Indiana, and I was living with my grandmother and all of my aunts, because she lived in one big giant house. And my aunt was uh, married to a guy named Bobby. He was my uncle. And Bobby said, TJ, that's my nickname, TJ. I want to take you fishing one day. I said, all right, yeah, I'd love to go fishing. So he comes in his old beat-up pickup truck one day, and um, he gets me in the car again. I'm like eight years old, and he, we've got the fishing gear in the back, and he's got you know a chicken livers because we were fishing for catfish that day. And we went to this uh, huge bridge in New Albany, Indiana, southern Indiana, and we fished for the whole day. I can't remember if we caught anything or not, but it was a really, really good time. When we got done fishing, he said, hey, you want to get some white castles? And I said, yeah, because I loved and still love me some white castles. I love white castles. Some people don't like white castles, but I love them. So um, we went to, we went to um, white castles that day, and he got me, I don't know how many it was. It might have been three or four white castles. And back then, they were, what? They were like 18 cents, I think. We're talking the late 70s, okay? Late 70s. They're like 18 cents. Today, I think they're like 75 cents, or maybe they might even be 89 cents or something like that for one. But anyway, so I got some White Castles. We get back in the truck, and uh, we start driving off, and he says, hey, TJ, can I have one of those White Castles? And I said, no! You can't have any of my White Castles. He looked over at me, and he said, boy... I hope you choke on them white castles. <laughs> no sooner as he said it, I started uh, uh, uh. I started choking on the white castles. He had to pull over, he had to stop the truck, he's like hitting me on the back, right? He almost did the Heimlich on me or something to get the white castles lodged out of my throat. So I finally stopped choking. I break down crying because I thought I was gonna die. And he was just laughing, 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 laughing. To this day, 35 some odd years later, every single time I see my uncle, he says, hey, you want to give me something in White Castle? Every single time. I've never been able to live down the story. My family talks about it. All my cousins talk about it. Everybody talks about the White Castle story. Turn with me over to Genesis chapter 29. The story does um, apply to what we're going to talk about today. Last that we found um, Jacob, he had deceived his father and stolen his brother's birthright with the help of his mother. And he was on the run. He's being hunted by his brother. His brother wanted to kill him. And Jacob had been sent to Abraham's country to stay with his mother's brother Laban. His father, Isaac, had also commanded him, Hey, while you're there, find a wife from amongst your relatives. Do not marry one of the Canaanite women that are here in the promised land. And so on the way, he has a dream of of heaven and heaven being connected to earth by ways or means of, of a stairway or ladder. And God, promising the same promises of Abraham and the same promises of Isaac, he's now promising to Jacob himself, and reassuring him that he's going to be with him. And while God is with him every step of the way, Jacob's nature has changed little. And what was supposed to be a short journey ends up lasting 20 years as he reaps the effects and the consequences of his past sin. And God deals with his character. What's the big idea from this passage for us today? It's God cannot be mocked. God cannot be mocked. And we reap what we sow. That's also the title of the lesson this morning. Please pray with me. We'll dive into our passage. Our heavenly king, our father, God, you are merciful. You're mighty, worthy of our praise, beyond our understanding, full of love. Full of grace, full of tenderness, and at the same time, Father, you hold us accountable. We are called to account for our past sins, whether that's by paying for them through the consequences of life or whether that's your son, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for them, but Father, no sin goes unnoticed, no sin goes unpunished, and Father, only you are able to do this. We pray that as we look at this uh, story of Jacob and his life, that God, we would um, respect you so much and realize that you cannot be mocked and that you need to be involved in every single area of our lives. We pray again for our brothers and sisters that are in India right now who are preaching the word. We pray for open doors. We pray for boldness. We pray for courage. We pray for their safety. Let their trip bear amazing fruit. For generations to come and bring them home safely. We love you again. We do pray in Jesus's name. Amen. 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 So today I'm going to do something a little bit different. I am going to read the passage, but I'm going to be pausing throughout the passage just to make some commentary. And then at the end, I'll just make two points at the end. And so Genesis chapter 29, beginning in verse one, it says, then Jacob continued on his journey And came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. A stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. So uh, in Hebrew, when it says, then Jacob continued on his journey, the, the Hebrew word there means he lifted up his feet. And so after he would had this encounter with God, he actually kind of goes with kind of a, a pep in his step. You know, he's he's refreshed, he's recharged, he's vibrant, he's hopeful of everything that God is going to do with him and for him and through him on this journey. And so, as he travels along, he does find this well, and this well seems to be important because the word "well" is mentioned over and over and over again in the first eight verses or so. And uh, the, the, a well back in the ancient Near East was kind of like a, um, a seven, kind of like a wawa. Okay, as you're traveling along, right? You know, you see the wawa, and you're like, "Oh yes, let me stop at the wawa." That's what a well was like back then. It was a place where people would stop to recharge, to congregate, to gather, to water their sheep before taking them back out to pasture again. And this particular well uh, was was covered, was covered with a stone and it was covered so that um, sand would not refill the well. But it seems like also there was some kind of protocol on how to use the well. If we keep reading, or if we, I'm sorry, let me just repeat the verse here. In verse um, two, it says there he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near because the flocks were watered from that well. A stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. And so the stone had to have been of some size because it says that the shepherds, plural, would roll the stone away. And so it was covered up to protect the well from misuse. And here in verse four, it says, Jacob asked the shepherds, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. And so, whomever owned this well, they, they didn't want people just coming in, rolling away the stone, watering their sheep, putting the stone back on again, just went, however and whenever you wanted to do it. They said, No, there's going to be an appointed time when we do this each day. We want all of the flocks to come in at once, gather around, then we're going to roll away the stone one time, feed or water all of the sheep, and then we're going to put the stone back on one time. Jacob um, doesn't agree with this necessarily, and he says, Well, listen, the sun is still high. It's basically it's noon. The day is early. Why are you waiting now until the end of the day for all the flocks to be gathered? And probably those guys were there because they wanted to be first in line, more than likely. But Because Jacob doesn't um, agree with this, he says, go ahead and water your sheep and take them back to pasture. Now, as we read this, we're like, so what does this even mean? Like, who cares? Like how these flocks, sheep are being watered. We're going to talk about that here in just a second. They do say we can't. Um, They're going to stick to their protocol. And then in verse nine, it says, while he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah, so she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home, and there Jacob told him all these things Then Jacob said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. And so as Laban gets this report from Rachel, he uh, remembers um, over 60 years prior when his sister also came running from a well with a similar story. But she had some jewelry on, too. And Laban takes off running to meet this new visitor. We see here with um, uh, Jacob he either a he was trying to impress rachel right you know hey these little weak guys they can't roll away the stone i'm gonna roll away the stone all by myself right he he probably was thinking that but i think one of the things that we see is that jacob just was not holding to the custom jacob wanted to do things his way instead of the way that the customs were and we're going to learn more about that a little bit later on as well after uh, Jacob tells him all these things and probably what Jacob told him was the whole story of, you know, I'm on the run. My brother's hunting me. This is why my brother's hunting me. And, you know, I stopped at the well. Lo and behold, I saw your daughter, uh, Rachel. And 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 amen. I'm here. I'm supposed to be staying with you, you know, until my brother stops hunting me. And we're related, by the way. And and Laban says, you are my own flesh and blood. And that statement is was not an acknowledgement of them being related. Their statement, that statement probably was, we're cut from the same cloth. We're we're very similar to each other. You're a deceiver, and I'm a deceiver too. You kind of have some craftiness and some cunningness. I do too, because we remember from the first situation with uh, Laban and his sister Rebecca, he was all fired up because she had the jewelry on. And he's fired up here in this instance. Well, he's not fired up here because Jacob doesn't have anything to offer, but he does come running because he thought that Jacob might have had something to offer. Let's keep going. Verse 14, then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. So Jacob had been freeloading for a month, and now Laban is putting him to work, is, in essence, is what's happening. Verse 16 now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return your younger daughter Rachel. And so Jacob here names his price 7 years of labor for this woman that he seems to have been smitten with. It seems that he had love at first sight. Now the author is is careful to point out that Laban had two daughters. Rachel was the first to come on the scene, but he's careful to say that there's actually two of them. The other one was named Leah. She had weak eyes and Scholars don't really know exactly what weak eyes meant. Some translations say delicate eyes. Other translations say tender eyes. The point is that she's contrasted with Rachel. And now for sure, Rachel was supposed to be a bombshell here. It says that she had a lovely figure and she was beautiful. And that's what Jacob was attracted to. Okay, and she's contrasted to her. So supposedly she may have been just more plain, maybe. I I don't want to comment on how the woman might have looked. (laughs) All I'm saying is that Jacob liked Rachel more than he liked Leah based on looks, okay? On top of that, Leah was the older of the two which would have put her in line to be married first. In verse 19 Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Now, Jacob really did love her, okay? I mean, it, it was, it was a, probably initiated and started by an infatuation, but he really did love Rachel, and, and that plays out even through the rest of his life. At the very end of his life, as he's about to go to Egypt, he's, he's kind of telling a little story, and then he has this uh, flashback of Of how Rachel had died and how much he wept and and grieved for her. He truly did love this woman. And so uh, many years, I'm sorry, let me just jump down to verse 21. It says, Then Jacob said to Laban, "Uh, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. Now, Laban was in no hurry to give Rachel to him. And it seems as if the seven years had passed and Once the seven years had passed, Laban didn't come and initiate and say, hey, your seven years is up. Here's my daughter. It seems like the seven years had passed, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months. And all the while, Jacob is getting frustrated to where he eventually comes to Laban and says, look, hey, seven years is up. Where's my wife? My time's completed. I want to make love to her. Other translations are even more graphic than that. We won't read the other translations this morning. But, this may sound crude, but at the same time realize that he did wait seven years to sleep with his wife. I mean, nowadays, people don't want to wait seven days. Some people don't want to wait seven hours before they sleep with someone that they're physically attracted to. So, I mean, we can't give them some credit for waiting seven years. Verse 22 So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. That was customary. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And so here, the trickster is tricked. The smart has been outsmarted. The deceiver is himself deceived by one more cunning and more crafty than he. Jacob has finally met his match. And you wonder, how in the world could that have possibly happened? Surely he knew what those women looked like. Well, it was dark. I mean, it says, as the evening came, right? And back then, uh, the... Women weren't dressed like they are today. I mean, normally the face is unveiled. You know, white dress. We have typically long engagement periods. You're really familiar, you know, with the woman you're getting engaged to. Back then, if he was, if it was dark and they had a a tent set up, you know, uh, Laban very easily could have put Rachel's clothes on Leah. She probably was veiled since they were sisters. They they probably you know looked somewhat similar. And there was a party going on. And so Jacob, perhaps, was a little bit drunk, perhaps. And so he goes in and, and he sleeps with the wrong woman. And you got to love the Bible. It's just raw. It's uncut, unfiltered, unashamed. I mean, there's some passages in the Bible. I'm like, ash- I'm blush to preach some of the passages in the Bible. But this is better than binge-watching any Netflix out there. I mean, just reading the Bible, but Jacob is, he's, he's indignant. What, do I hear Mike Mitchell back there? Mike, like, (laughs) he has, like, been my eternal heckler. Mike and Tanner, heckle me and stop, Mike. I gotta focus here. Anyway. Jacob is so indignant. He says, what is this you've you've done to me? I've served you for Rachel. Why have you deceived me? If you remember Abraham with Abimelech. Abimelech, they both said something very similar to Abraham. When Abraham lied about Sarah being his sister versus his wife. They both said, why have you deceived us? Why have you done this to me? Verse 26, Laban's response is just brutal. Verse 26, Laban replies, wait for it now. It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Drop the mic, turn off the lights, go home. Basically, what he's saying is, unlike you, Jacob, who disregarded the rights of the firstborn, we don't do that around here. We honor firstborn rights. And so I see you trying to put the moves on my younger daughter, Rachel. But guess what? Around here, we don't roll like that. And so that's why you got Leah instead. Jacob's sin is now coming full circle. It's coming back to bite him. And if you want Rachel, what he's saying is that's another seven years. Now, now at least Laban was willing to give her... He said, finish out the bridal week. I'll give you Rachel, but then you got to work the seven years. At least he didn't say, work the next seven years, and then I'll give you Rachel. He gave her his daughter first, and then he worked the last seven years. Verse 28. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter, Rachel as her attendant... Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. And so Jacob complies, but there's some foreshadowing of some favoritism that's going on there. The Bible is clear that Jacob, he loves Rachel more than he loves Leah, and this is going to present some problems in his life later on. It's going to present problems in his son's life, Joseph. Joseph was favored by Jacob because Joseph was Rachel's son and we know what happens to Joseph he ends up his brothers sell him off to the Ishmaelites they take him into Egypt and he's in Egypt for for many many years all because of this favoritism but at this point Jacob now has two wives let's talk about polygamy pull up my next slide (laughs) polygamy is it okay have you ever seen the show? Raise your hand if you've ever seen the show before. I, I don't know what your views are on the show. I do not, let me make it clear. I do not agree with polygamy, okay? But I like the show, believe it or not. And the reason why I like the show is because I'm so just um, amazed by how this guy is able to manage four wives. And four families. I watch it and I'm just like, he goes from house to house. He's one of the most sensitive, loving, caring. He's like thinking of everything in advance. I mean, he provides for all four families. And it's just like amazing what this guy does. And so that's why I I appreciate how he is, although I do not agree with polygamy. I just want to make it clear again, okay? But there are some some cool things that he's able to do. And I don't know how he's able to do it. But the man has four wives. And uh, this is uh, kind of similar to what we're looking at today. Jacob's wives are literally sisters. Something happened to what? Oh, something happened bad. I mean, I haven't watched it in probably five years. but So I don't know what's going on now. But some bad stuff have okay i'm sorry don't watch the later seasons watch the earlier ones okay but polygamy is, is basically having many wives right bigamy is is two wives by poly is many polygamy was tolerated in the old testament lamech had multiple wives abraham had multiple wives jacob had multiple wives David had multiple wives. Solomon, we know, had multiple wives. But in almost every single circumstance, there were bad consequences that came from having all of these wives. It was never encouraged in the Old Testament. However, there was also never a law specifically forbidding it under the Old Covenant. It was not ideal for certain And the times that we do see it in the Bible, we see lots of dysfunction that comes from having multiple wives. Genesis 2 gives us the ideal marriage situation, and that is one man, one woman for life. Amen? That's far more manageable than what this guy was going through. It seems to have faded as a a practice uh, as as time went on. During the first century Judea, like in Jesus' day, it was not a, a common or widespread thing to have multiple wives. So I just wanted to kind of talk about that briefly because you might have been wondering. But anyway, next slide. Wow. The story, I don't know if, if as you as you read it, did it remind you of another story that we've already read? Anybody? Bueller? Any other story? Genesis 24, when Abraham's servant went to go find a wife for Isaac. Remember that? Very, very similar story. And I think that as Moses writes this, I think that he he writes both stories so that we can compare and contrast. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to pull out two quick points from comparing these this morning. Uh, The first point is take the Lord with you. Take the Lord with you. Both of the stories in Genesis 24 and Genesis 29 begin with commands not to take wives from amongst the Canaanites. They both involve going on a journey from the promised land back to Abraham's country, which was Mesopotamia. They both kind of end up at a water source. The servant was at a spring. Here we find Jacob at a well. The future wives suddenly appear in both. If you remember the first one, it says that as the servant was still praying, right? Rachel comes. And here in this situation, Jacob is there. He's talking. and They say, well, hey, there's Rachel right there with the sheep. They both kind of suddenly appear. There's an exchange of understanding um, who the visitor is. Some are like, oh, hey, I'm, I'm, your, your bro- I'm your father's nephew in our situation. And the other one, I can't remember how convoluted it was. But anyway, they, they talked about how they were related. And then the girls run home to tell Laban. Laban comes running out in both of the situations. And the girls both end up marrying a patriarch in both of the scenarios. But there's some very major differences. One, this story is probably at least 60 years later from the first story. The second is Isaac remained in the promised land while the servant went and found his wife. Jacob was forced out of the promised land because he deceived his father and his brother. In the first story, the servant came prepared to pay a bride price In this situation, Jacob comes with nothing. As I've been reading more and more, I don't even know if Jacob rode on a camel. He might have walked the entire way. He had literally nothing but the shirt on his back, ill-prepared to find a wife, and that's why he has to offer himself to work. It's to pay the bridal price. Abraham and the servant had some godly criteria in mind for a bride. They even had tests. To reveal Rebecca's godly qualities. Jacob's only test. If you want to. And if you even want to call him that. Was one. She wasn't a Canaanite. And two. She was beautiful. Those were his tests. The servant. In Genesis 24. Was so prayerful. Go back and read that. Like every little step of the way. He's praying that God would give him success. In finding this wife. For Jacob. No mention of prayer at all. The servant was very thankful when God revealed Rebekah to him. Jacob breaks down in tears, but he doesn't give any thanks to God. None whatsoever. The Lord made it clear in Genesis 24 that he chose Isaac's wife through the servant. For Jacob, it was very clear that he chose his own wife, Rachel. The Lord was abundantly present in Genesis 24 in Isaac's marriage story. But where was the Lord in Jacob's marriage story? When he tells this story later on, is he going to be like Isaac who can say, Yeah, and the Lord did, and the Lord did, and we prayed to the Lord, and you know what? The servant thanked the Lord, and God did, and brought Rebekah. No, Isaac can't say that. Isaac, he goes along, he's like, Yep, I saw her, she was awesome. I wanted to, you know, get with her. You know what I mean? And I did what I needed to do. And so Jacob he had this encounter with God, but he still went on his own strength. And he was guided by his own understanding. You know, this leads to bad decision making. This leads to some unwanted consequences. If Jacob were actually prayerful about this. Would he have fallen head over heels for Rachel? I don't know. He didn't know anything about her. He didn't know if she was spiritual, unspiritual. He didn't know anything. He just saw how she looked. If he were prayerful and taking the Lord with him, would would God have guided him perhaps to Leah instead since she was the firstborn? Yeah. Next week, we'll read that she was the fertile one. She's the one that, that, were, that was able to bear children. Rachel was actually barren for a time. When Leah died, she was the one that was buried in the tomb with Abraham, with Sarah, with Isaac, and with Rebecca. Rachel was buried on the side of a road going to Bethlehem. Jacob, comparatively speaking, wasn't even with Rachel that long, maybe 15 or 20 years. She died in childbirth. If he would have taken the Lord with him. Would he have gone on and married Rachel after he had gotten Leah? So here he is. He, 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 he accidentally, I don't know, whatever, was deceived into sleeping with Leah. Why didn't he say, oh, the Lord is trying to speak to me. Maybe this is supposed to be my wife. She is the firstborn. And you know what? It probably would not be best for me to take a second wife. He didn't do that. He wasn't prayerful. He didn't take the Lord with him. He wasn't involving and inviting God to be a part of his situation. All he could think about was he wanted Rachel. And so when Laban says, this is a good opportunity for me to get rid of my second daughter as well. Seven more years. Guess what? Jacob snaps her up and he pays, figuratively speaking, far, far more than what somebody would have worked for for a bride. Normally they would have worked two to three years for a bride. Here, Jacob works 14 years for Rachel. Not to say that she wasn't worth it. Okay, obviously, I think she was a great woman. I'm just saying he was not obliged to take Rachel as his second bride. Would he have needed to stay in Haran for 20 years? Mind you, he never saw his mother again. If he would have been prayerful, maybe he would have gotten out of there two or three years worth of work. Had Leah come on home, seen his mom. Life might have been very, very different. I don't know. I'm just speculating. But I am making the point that we've got to take the Lord everywhere we go. We've got to be close to God. We've got to be connected to him. In all of the decisions that we make, and I think that this contrast between Genesis 24, Genesis 29, Abraham's servant, and Jacob, it makes the point obviously and incredibly clear. In one story, God is there, he's present, he's with them, he's moving, he's providing just the right woman, just the right circumstances so that the servant can be successful. God is involved. It's a smooth situation It was a quick turnaround From the time that he got there To the time the servant went back home again Jacob on the other hand It was convoluted It was messy This is what life is like When God is not involved in our lives Things are messy It's like a spider's web You ever walked down a path in the woods before And all of a sudden you're like You're like what is this There's a spider web Like all over That's how life becomes When God is not involved in our lives, when we don't take the Lord with us, it gets messy. When God isn't involved in who we're going to date, who we're going to marry, I mean, God's got to be involved in these things. How can we possibly think that we're going to find the right person without God's intervention? How dare we think that we can just rely on our strength, rely on our fleshly appetites and our eyes, To choose a bride or a husband for ourselves. We can't do that. God's got to be involved in the career paths that we choose. Sometimes we choose to take jobs and careers that just take us out of the kingdom of God. Separate us from the fellowship. This damages us. This hurts us. This makes life complicated. We've got to take God everywhere we go with who our friends are going to be. There was an old rap song. EPMD, I think it was. He says, if you hang with nine broke friends, you're bound to be the 10th one. But I think that 1 Corinthians probably says it better. That bad company corrupts good character. You become like the people you spend the most time with. Should God not be involved in our decisions on who we're going to be friends with and who we're going to spend time with? What schools we attend? What cities or neighborhoods we're going to live in? God needs to be involved. Major purchases, homes, cars, on and on. Even our parenting approaches God has to be involved. We've got to take the Lord with us. And when God is involved, life works out so much better. We might not necessarily get what our flesh wants and desires, but the path is so much more smooth. It's so much more glorifying to him. Are you with me? And so as we tell the stories about the decisions in our own lives, is the Lord present? Mind you, as Jacob was telling his would tell his marriage story, he could not talk about God. It was all about him. I wanted this, and I wanted that, and I went by the well, and I saw these guys, and so I rolled back the stone, and I saw Rebecca, and man, she was a knockout. I, I knew I wanted that woman, and so I offered to work seven years for her, and yeah, I kind of had a little mess up with Leah, but then I worked another seven years, and... It's like, where's God in this? When we tell our stories, you know what? I grew up in this neighborhood and I went to this school and I went to this college and I got this job and I met so and so. Can we say, you know, and the Lord moved me from here to there. The Lord told me to go do this. You know, when I wanted to date, I prayed and the Lord provided just the right person for me to get married to. The Lord told me, you know, where to live. You know, I wanted to live over here in this neighborhood, but God thought it was better that I live over here so that I could reach out to people. And when I chose my career path, I really was thinking, what's going to be most glorifying to the Lord? What's going to be pleasing him? And and you know what? God got me just the right job. and, And I got more money than I was even thinking about making it. Is the Lord in our stories? I'm not saying that we need to like rewrite history and start sticking the Lord in like every other every other word, right? And the Lord and the Lord and the Lord. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, but genuinely, genuinely, God has to be involved so much so that when we retell our stories, He's a main character in the plot line. It's not just you and your spouse, your your mom and your dad, or whomever. But the Lord is a main character. So my challenge this week is take him with you everywhere you go. Be prayerful about your decisions. Be thankful for the outcomes. Second point. This is a little bit shorter here. The second thing that we can learn from this story is just the title. God cannot be mocked. We reap What we sow. Even though Jacob didn't include God in the process, did that mean that God was not included in the process? No, because God is included in every process, God is present in every situation, He's always present. And he allows consequences to come upon our lives for everything that we do. I'm not going to say punishment because I don't think that Jacob was being punished for what he did. I think God was allowing him to receive the natural results of his behavior. I think he was allowing him to reap from what he'd already sown and he was not shielding him from it. And just because he had escaped from his brother didn't mean that Jacob had escaped. He just went from one bad situation to another. His brother didn't find him, but his sin did. And it took 20 years to learn that lesson. Galatians 6 does say, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. We cannot pull a fast one on the Lord. You can't pull a blanket over his head. You can't trick him. You can't do a magic trick and God say, Oh, how did you do that? I'm so amazed. He knows everything. And if we sow to please our flesh, then we'll reap destruction from the flesh. Because flesh and blood and the things of this world are temporary and they cannot save us. But he sees the good things, too. And when we sow to please the spirit through Jesus Christ, we're taking the Lord with us. We're leaning on God for guidance. And from the spirit, we will reap eternal life. Amen. Amen. Because the spirit is eternal. And through him, we are saved. And so what seeds are we sowing this afternoon? Are they seeds to please our flesh like Jacob? Or are they seeds to sow the spirit? Let's be prayerful. Let's surrender to God. Let's involve him in all that we do. Let's deny what our flesh wants and let's get guidance in particular on major decisions that we're making in our lives. Because from these seeds, we will reap eternal life. Amen. Amen. If you're sowing seeds to please your flesh this morning, repent. Repent. Change your mind about how you're living and turn to Jesus Christ. He died, he was buried, and he rose again from the dead so that you could be filled with his spirit and so that you could have eternal life. You know, in the end, God still got his way. He used Laban's craftiness to show Jacob that he cannot deny the rights of the firstborn and to show him that what he had done to Esau was wrong. And even though Jacob got Rachel, he ended up with Leah too. And unloved Leah... Not Rachel is the one who became the mother of Judah, who was the ancestor of King David and Solomon and ultimately Jesus Christ. God cannot be mocked. Let's take the Lord with us everywhere we go here in the Hampton Roads Church. Amen.